Well, good morning. You can go ahead and begin opening your Bibles and seeking out the book of Haggai. Uh, it's different than the series we've been going through through Matthew. Haggai is one of those minor prophets, third from the last in the Old Testament. So where we'll be spending our time this morning is we uh, come to a natural conclusion in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I say conclusion, really a pause. This isn't a end to our study in the Gospel of Matthew at the end of chapter 9, where we finished last week. And we're going to pick it up, but before we did that, I wanted to take time this summer to do a short series through a book of the Old Testament. And so I've chosen the book of Haggai, probably one that you have not heard too many sermons on. Um, some of us even struggle to pronounce it. The song we just sang, His Mercy is More, is a fitting transition into our study this morning. As we look at the book of Haggai, as we look at God's call to those who are sinners, to those who have wandered away, to those who have ceased to obey Him. It's good and right for us as we come to church on Sunday morning, as we gather together, to be reminded that our sins are many. There is no benefit to any of us in coming in with a pretense of perfection, of standing here assuming that we have it all together. No, we come to be reminded that His mercy is more. Our need to repent is a daily, hourly, perhaps minute-by-minute minute practice that we need to engage in. And so we're thankful for the words of that song, the reminder that our sins are many, His mercy is more, and now we have the opportunity to engage His Word, God's words to us, as He desires to instruct us, to teach us, and to guide us to bind up our wounds, that we may walk faithfully as his disciples. You know, when we drive each day, as you drive around, we're surrounded by signs. There's road markers, there's speed limit signs, there's red lights, green lights, all other type of lights. And they're everywhere. And these directional or these warning signs are there, and they're intended for what purpose? Well, they're intended to help us arrive at our destination safely without hurting ourselves or others. Now, what would happen if you chose, and perhaps your fellow drivers chose, to just ignore those signs? It's unlikely that you'd ever reach your destination, at least not in a timely manner. It's likely, unlikely you'd reach it unharmed. Perhaps you'd even be killed in the process. I mean, think about it. We drive a metal and plastic box at terminal speeds every day. Were it not for these signs and drivers following these signs, we would never get from point A to point B. Well, this morning we are pausing our study in the Gospel of Matthew, as I've already noted, to start this short summer series through the book of Haggai. And as we observe Haggai, we're going to see within it signs, warnings, and instructions provided within the context to post-exilic Israel coming out of their Babylonian exile. But as Paul reminds us in Romans 15, whatever was written beforehand was written for our instruction that we might be, have perseverance, that we might be encouraged, that we might know how to obey. And so as we look at these things, they are intended for our benefit as both directional and warning signs of the spiritual dangers that face us in the world. And this morning we're going to look at three dangers to a healthy spiritual life and work together to discern how do we avoid these things? How do we identify these things? First is 
the danger of spiritual petrification. Secondly, the danger of spiritual presumption. And thirdly, the danger of misplaced priorities. Or, to help you remember it, we're looking at petrification, presumption, and priorities with regard to our spiritual lives. How do we avoid these dangers? How do we correctly place our priorities? Well, we're going to begin answering those questions, looking first at these three this morning. If you would, look down at your text of Haggai this morning, and we're going to read just the first four verses as we enter into our study this morning. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Pray with me. Father, as we enter into our study this morning, give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we look into the example we have of the nation of Israel at this time coming out of exile. Father, help us to take the example and to apply it to our lives as we look at dangers to avoid as we desire to serve you, to be faithful and obedient disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, Haggai is a fascinating book. If you haven't spent much time reading it, it really is fascinating. And perhaps what makes it so fascinating is, is the context in which it falls. Haggai itself holds a somewhat unique place as one of the few prophets who actually get to see the people hear and respond to the message he delivers. That's pretty unique in the history of Israel. Now, again, to understand the setting of Haggai, to understand what makes it so unique, you have to spend a little bit of time in Ezra and 2 Kings. And we're going to do a bit of a history lesson this morning. As we look to lay the groundwork to Haggai's message and ministry that we'll be engaging in over the next several weeks. It's actually in the midst of the history lesson that we will encounter the first spiritual danger, the danger of spiritual petrification. Verse 1 notes that the book of Haggai begins in the second year of Darius the king. But the setting actually begins approximately 17 to 18 years prior with the rise of Cyrus, king of Persia. And so in order to understand this setting and background, I need you to turn with me to the book of Ezra. So we started in Matthew last week. You've turned left to Haggai. You've got to keep going left. Go to Ezra. It's right after Chronicles. And you go and turn to the first chapter of Ezra. The ladies will be studying the book of Ezra this fall in their Bible study. So you can consider this morning and the next few weeks as we study Haggai a teaser and preview to the study this fall. Now to set the scene for Haggai, we need to understand what's going on in the first three and a half chapters of Ezra. Don't worry, I'm not going to read all of it this morning. There's some genealogical lists in it and numbers and everything else. For the sake of time, we won't read it in detail, but I do want you to understand what is going on in these first three and a half chapters. So I'm going to give you the highlight reel, and I'll pick out several important passages. Cyrus's reign 
right here at the beginning. In fact, let's just read the first couple of verses. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Every survivor, at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold, with goods and cattle, together with a freewill offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Now this in and of itself should be somewhat amazing. Here we have a Gentile pagan king shows up on the scene and says, God has appointed me to do this thing in that little podunk country of Israel. To rebuild his house. Cyrus's reign marks the end of 70 years of captivity for Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. This 70 years had been foretold by Jeremiah. In fact, it was at the end of the 70 years, right around this same time, right before Cyrus issues his decree, that in chapter 9 of Daniel, you find Daniel observing in the book of Jeremiah the end of the 70 years, the promise of the 70 years, and now the end of those 70 years. And recognizing that they've come to completion, he begins praying, that is Daniel, praying to the Lord for, to fulfill his promise. And if there is any quality that defines God, it is that he keeps his promises. So God stirred the heart of Cyrus, the king of Persia, to allow the people of Judah to return to Israel and rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. What is fascinating even more than the 70-year prediction, is that there was a prophet approximately 150 years earlier who said that a ruler named Cyrus would be raised up and would issue a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple after the deportation and exile. This is the prophet Isaiah. And you're welcome to turn there or just take note, but in Isaiah 44, and then right at the end of 44, in verse 28, and then leading into 45, you see these promises about Cyrus. Verse 28 says, It is I who says of Cyrus, and this is God speaking through Isaiah, It is I who says, He is my shepherd. He will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, She will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. Isaiah continues into chapter 45 with further details and promises concerning Cyrus with such specificity and accuracy that many have said through the years that this is just impossible. It is impossible that Isaiah could have foretold this because it is way too accurate. You had to have known what was, took place in order to write this. It must have been edited later and these details added into Isaiah's preaching, or, or Isaiah himself wrote later, or maybe there was a made-up Isaiah who we added in some of what he said. You know, I at least appreciate this honesty on their part, those who suggest these other alternatives, because they've rightly recognized that the only other alternative to this being accurate is that God moved Isaiah to write those words because God knows the end from the beginning. The only alternative is that he is a sovereign God who rules from the heaven and governs the affairs of men. 
The only other alternative is that God is real and that because of that, man must give an account to him as creator and sovereign. Unable to accept this, many offer fabricated alternatives to the accuracy of Isaiah's prophecy concerning Cyrus or Jeremiah's prophecy concerning the 70 years. And yet, we recognize the sovereignty of God, the omniscience of God, the understanding of God, the working of God to pin these words. Returning to Ezra, as we lay the foundation for Haggai, we see in chapter 1 that God stirs up that heart of Cyrus to issue a decree for the Jews living throughout the empire to return any, any Jew whom God has stirred up their hearts to return and rebuild the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. And what you find throughout the rest of chapter 2 is the names of those whom the Lord has stirred up their hearts, even into chapter 3. In fact, he stirred up the hearts of some who couldn't even trace their genealogy back to the Jews. Much like when they left Egypt and so many of the Egyptian families joined in what was going on. You see, God has always been a God to the Gentiles. Israel was always to be a light to the nations. And yet for his glory, he chose, for no other reason other than he wanted to make an example, he chose Israel to be that light. And since the beginning, nations and persons and peoples have been attracted to that light when it shone. Well, Cyrus goes, doesn't just say you can return. He goes into the storehouses of Babylon. He pulls out all the articles of the temple, everything that had been carried out of Jerusalem in those three stages of exile in 605, 597, and 586. And notice in verses 9 through 11 of Ezra 1, the specificity of the items that were returned, the silver and the gold and the quantity of these artifacts, these utensils, what was to be used in the house of the Lord. Next, Ezra notes all those whom the Lord has stirred up to return. And we're not going to go through the list of names at this time, but I want you to note something. You see, genealogies, names, and lists are never given just to fill extra space. There is a purpose behind them. And there's more purposes than we're going to get into this morning, but I want you to note something. You see these names, and we're not used to reading genealogical lists, so we start reading and it feels exhaustive and like a lot, but I want you to notice is how few actually return, specifically among the spiritual leaders and the political leaders of Judah. In fact, of the 24 priestly orders, there are only representatives from four of them that return down in verse 36. There were 24 priestly orders and many different persons in these orders, and of that, only one-sixth of them are stirred up to return. Only 74 Levites and only 392 temple servants or workers. These are out of tens of thousands. Now, it was a good-sized group, but it was still only a small sampling, especially among these spiritual leaders of Israel. And there's really good reason for this. The reason for the deportation centered on what? What was the reason that Judah was deported to begin with and exiled? Why did God allow, in fact, he used Babylon, he called using Babylon his servant to inflict judgment and punishment on Judah for 70 years. Why? Because of spiritual unfaithfulness, of idolatry. Well, who led them into this idolatry? Over and over again, you see it in the prophets. It's the spiritual leaders. The political leaders, they have led them into this idolatry. 
And so the number of those who remained faithful in that time and after that time was small. Just as Daniel and his three friends were in the minority when it came to serving the Lord amongst the political leaders in Israel. And yet there were some. God has always kept and remained and maintained a remnant. Now in chapter 3 of Ezra, the people have arrived. They've taken census. They've determined where they would live. And the spiritual and political leaders of Israel rose after they they settled in. Everybody, find out where you're going to live. Okay, now they gathered together and led the people to build an altar to the Lord. According to the law of Moses, upon the foundation where the temple was to be rebuilt, they didn't use their own imagination. They didn't guess at what was to be done. They opened the law of Moses and did it according to the law of Moses. And they offered burnt offerings morning and evening. And this was done out of two, for two reasons. One was out of obedience. The other one was out of fear. And it was fear of the other nations that surrounded them. And out of that fear, it caused them to turn to begin sacrificing, turning to God, calling out to Him, and putting their trust and their faith in God to sustain them and protect them. This is parenthetical. It's not our primary emphasis this morning. But notice how fear, difficult circumstances, etc., may be brought into our lives so that we may demonstrate our trust in God and turning to God. Sometimes it may take us longer than others to respond. In this case, that is exactly what the spiritual and political leaders of Israel did, and the people as well. Rather than trusting in their own strength, trying to prepare for defense, or becoming frantic and preserving their lives, they turned, they built an offer, they offered sacrifice with prayer to the Lord, trusting in His protection. And then notice what they did. Once they had done that, that that fear didn't paralyze them. After they did that, after they began worshiping Him, they then set out to obey Him and to fulfill their purpose. Why were they sent? To rebuild the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. Verse 6 notes that the foundation of the temple had not been laid. So what did they do? They took the money to hire masons and carpenters. They bartered with the Sidians and Tyrrhenians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa. And they began the work of rebuilding the temple. And once the foundation was completed, there at the end of chapter 3, once the foundation was completed, there was great rejoicing, a loud tumult. But there's also great sorrow for those who were turned, who were aged, would have been considered the elders, the wise, gray hair upon their head, who remembered seeing Solomon's temple. And they wept. Yes, they were grateful for what the Lord has done, but they wept because they saw visibly the effects of sin and unfaithfulness. Nevertheless, the sound of the celebration, the sound of the response to the temple foundation being laid was heard far away and roused the attention of their neighbors. So chapter 4 of Ezra, following on the heels of the celebration of chapter 3, opens saying that when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were rebuilding a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households, and they said to them, what did they say? They said, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Well, that's great. They've got more hands to get the job done. 
But let's stop for a moment. Because there's two very important things that have been noted. First, these aren't the friends of Judah and Benjamin. These are the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. These are persons who do not wish to see these returned exiles succeed. We're not made aware of all their motives, but their offer should immediately raise suspicion. And that suspicion is confirmed by the next thing they say. They mention that they seek the same God, and then they say, we've been doing it since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. And that's the giveaway. That's the clue that the leaders to the leaders of Israel or the leaders of Judah and Benjamin that these men were not here with pure motives. Rather, they were here to sabotage the true worship of Yahweh. How do we know this? Well, the answer is found in 2 Kings 17. So go to the left again. We're going further back into history. In 2 Kings 17, and you go down to verse 24, just a quick reminder, the northern kingdom of Israel, Israel divided and split into two kingdoms after the reign of Solomon. The northern kingdom had ten tribes to the north. The southern kingdom had two to the south. The northern kings, out of fear that they would go down and worship at the temple, built their own place to worship, their own altar, their own idols in Dan and Beersheba, where they placed these golden calves. They began this false and syncretistic worship. Saying, you, you can worship down in Jerusalem if you want, but we have worship here for you, so why would you go down there? That's a long trip. And the hearts of the people, especially into the north, were pulled further and further away from Yahweh from the Lord God. And so they were taken into captivity earlier than their brothers to the south, taken away in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. The Assyrians, when they conquered a people, would remove them from their homeland, depopulate the land, and then repopulate it with other conquered peoples. Now, why would they do this? Well, they did this because there's much less chance that people are going to rise up and rebel when it's not their own homeland they're rising up and rebelling to protect. Well, the people whom Esarhaddon brought in to replace the northern kingdom of Israel brought with them everything from home, including their false gods, their idols, and their false worship. And so God used Assyria to remove the Israelites, the northern kingdom, for their false worship and idolatry. And because of that, he certainly wasn't pleased with the idolatrous worship of these newcomers. It's not like he was okay with one form of idolatry, but not the another. All idolatry is onerous to God and odious to him. So what does he do? Well, he has control over all created things. There's a bunch of lions still in Israel at this time, so he uses them. He sends the lions in, and they start to attack the peoples that Esarhaddon has put into the land. Now imagine for a second, you've been conquered, you've been moved from your homeland, placed in this, little place, in this place called Israel, and as soon as you get placed there, lions start attacking you. Well, they do. What you would expect, they write immediately to Esarhaddon and said, we've upset the God of this land. Lions won't stop attacking us. You've got to help us protect ourselves. The only thing we can do is to appease the God of this land, so we need to know how, how do we appease this God? Esarhaddon, being reasonable, says, okay, well, I'll send you some of the priests that I took out so you can learn how to worship their God. So they came in and they taught them how to worship their God. And that's what the enemies of Judah and Benjamin were referring to in Ezra 4. But there's a problem with this. Why was Israel removed from the land to begin with? 
for the false worship and the idolatry. And the syncretism, that is the blending of the worship of Yahweh with false worship. So when these priests, these unfaithful priests who have been removed from the land were brought back to these people who didn't repopulate it into the land, what did they teach them? Did they teach them how to rightly worship Yahweh? Far from it. They taught them the same worship that had gotten them exiled in the first place. They said it's perfectly fine. Keep your idolatry. All you got to do is know a few things about Yahweh, mix it together, and it'll make a nice stew. And so they continued in their idolatrous worship from that time up until the time that Judah and Benjamin returned. Look down, before we turn back to Ezra and then ultimately to Haggai, look down at the end of 2 Kings 17 there. Notice the extent of this wickedness and this idolatry. In verse 31, it finishes describing the persons, and it says they... Of them, they burned their children in the fire of Adramelech and Anamelech, the gods of the Sepharvim. But they also feared the Lord and appointed from among themselves priests of the high places. You see how they had blended together? The sacrifice and murder of children. The leaders of Judah knew what they were getting into. Remember, this had taken place before Judah was exiled. They knew about these child murderers and idolaters to the north. The history was still there. It had been passed down. Some of the elders still remembered it. They weren't about to mix this syncretistic form of worship with Yahweh who had brought them and delivered them, had faithfully brought them out of exile after 70 years just as he had promised. That is why, turning back to Ezra 4, they respond in verse 3 by saying what? You have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Good for them. They will not allow this false, idolatrous, child-murdering, pagan, syncretistic idolatry to become a part of Judah's new history while they are in charge. So all is well, right? Well, not so much. See, verse 4 gives a sad ending to this. After responding so rightly, so brazenly, so correctly, the people of the land then discouraged them, and rather than doing what they had done when they had first arrived and putting their trust in God, sacrificing to Him and focusing on obeying Him, they started to pay attention to the threats, to the acts against them. So that your text says in verse 4, the people of Judah ceased from building. They stopped. This time, instead of turning to God in worship and trust, they respond in fear and cease obeying and stop building the temple. And they live in this petrifying fear for the next 16 to 17 years prior to Haggai coming to the scene. Notice carefully what has happened. They started out so strong. They even addressed their initial fear the right way by turning to God and worshiping Him. Not focusing on the fear itself, but on the worship of God. One who is bigger than their fear. This is what we saw from the disciples in the boat in Matthew. When they sailed across that night to the land of the Gadara and the Gadarenes, 
When the storm woke them up and they rose and they were afraid, Jesus calms the storm. And rather than being unafraid, they were terribly afraid because they saw one who was greater than the storm. But you see, Judah didn't do it this time. I mean, why does a child rush into their parents' arms when they're frightened? It's because they see their parents as bigger than the danger. But they didn't turn to God who is bigger than the danger. And the danger of this spiritual petrification is that it's only the start of the problem. You see, the idea of being petrified from fear may be a bit misleading because it's not that they remain in the exact same spiritual state. Far from it, that fear and that cessation of obedience caused them to disobey God in numerous ways. Like a house that begins to decay and break down if not properly cared and maintained for, our spiritual lives will decay and break down if not properly nurtured. This is the danger of being petrified by fear or allowing anything to distract you from obeying God. It's not simply that you stop growing, it's that you start shrinking in your faith. Your spiritual life becomes a shadow of what it once was. You find yourself struggling with sin that you thought you had defeated. And I speak from experience. And the only answer, the only solution is to start rightly thinking about God, worshiping God, and obeying Him. Doing the next right thing, which begins with how you think about God. Consider the last time you sinned. I can say with certainty that the last time you sinned, you were not thinking rightly about God and who He is. How you think about God, what you think about God, has a direct correlation to your life and your obedience. So if you're struggling to obey, start by reading your Bible. Read the Psalms in particular. Remind yourself of God's character, of His attributes, and who He is. And while doing this, work to obey. As you correct your thinking about God, as you grow in your knowledge about God, you will find that obedience becomes easier and easier. But you just have to do it. Israel living in petrified fear of the surrounding nations with its spiritual health slowly crumbling and decaying allows the work of the temple, the house of God, to cease for 16 to 17 years. That is the backdrop against which Haggai appears on the scene. Now we know very little about the prophet Haggai other than he, that he has likely seen the temple of Solomon. So he was close to 80, maybe even close to 90 years old. He's mentioned by Ezra a couple times, often in parallel with Zechariah, but always named first because he's likely the elder. Zechariah was prophesying right around the same time. In fact, Zechariah's ministry begins in the middle of chapter 2 of Haggai. We may assume that Haggai was a faithful follower of God. He was disturbed by what he had witnessed now for almost two decades. So Haggai arrives on the scene with a message from God, and that message begins with the identification of the people's spiritual presumption and the spiritual danger that has been created because of the petrification from fear and the decay that has taken place. So you can return to Haggai. Verse 2 of Haggai begins by noting that these are not Haggai's words, but God's words. God uses the prophet as a spokesperson to deliver this message. 
And that's true of all that we call Scripture or your Bible. Peter highlights this in the New Testament when he writes in 2 Peter 1.21, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Having laid this as the authoritative basis for the message to be delivered, God then starts to peel back the layers and diagnose Judah's unhealthy spiritual state in order to provide the remedy. We read that the people were saying, through their words and through their actions, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, after 16, 17 years, I doubt persons are regularly walking around repeating, nah, now's not the time to rebuild the house of the Lord, maybe tomorrow. I'm sure it came up in conversation every now and then, and it was quickly dismissed. And yet, their actions are screaming it. Every day, every hour, every minute that goes by without work being done on the temple or to further the rebuilding of the temple is a declaration that now is not the time. In this case, actions speak louder than words. So what's the big deal? The big deal is that God has most definitely said that now is the time. He spoke through Isaiah over 150 years previously about this day. He spoke through Jeremiah concerning this day. He stirred up the heart of Cyrus, the Gentile Persian king, for this time. Who do they think they are to presume that today is not the day for obedience after all this? Do you see how their fear has led to the state of now presuming upon God? Through their actions, they are asserting that they know better than God. God's timing is off. He didn't really mean what he said. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Cyrus, they had it all wrong when they said God wanted the temple rebuilt now. It can wait. You might just as well call this spiritual procrastination. This presumption is the height of arrogance. And yet, before we come down too harshly on these Judeans, I want us to recognize that this is an arrogance that every single one of us imitates when we sin. When we sin, we're saying God doesn't really know what's best, or God didn't really mean that. This is the lie the serpent whispered to Eve in the garden when he tempted her to sin. He tempted her by convincing her to doubt God and not take him at his word. To doubt his goodness, his plan, and his purpose. And sadly, Eve, followed by Adam, took it hook, line, and sinker, and we do it every time we sin. Every time we shade or compromise on the truth, every time we speak harshly, every time we harbor anger, every time we think lustful thoughts, each and every time we are proclaiming God is not good. God's plan and instructions are not the best. His purposes are not ideal, and we presume to know better than God. So what's the solution? How do we avoid this? How do we see this, this sign, this warning, when we, we observe what has taken place with the Judeans, this attitude that has crept in? How do we avoid this in our lives? Well, start by asking yourself, in what ways are you presuming upon God? David prays at the end of Psalm 19, Acquit me of hidden faults and keep me back from presumptuous sins. Pray that regularly. 
Where are your actions, your thoughts, your plans, or your words? What do they say? And where do they say that I know what's best, but not you, God? And this takes thought, because none of us will outright, or very few of us would outright say, I know better than God. And yet, stop and consider, where do your actions say that? So much of this goes back to doubting God. So renew the habit of seeking God daily. Studying to know him more. Praying for a sensitivity to disobedience like David prays. And then start with the small areas. Ensure you are striving for obedience in the small things. Or maybe it's a couple big things. But whatever it is, start doing it. Don't wait for tomorrow. It is today. The Lord will open up your eyes to new areas where you need to submit and repent of this presumption. But begin with the obvious areas. Don't worry about solving it all at once. It is a process. There's a progression of sin here that can be observed. This fear or some outside event 16 to 17 years earlier that affected these Judeans. And so they stop obeying, which leads to spiritual decay. And after a while, they begin to assume and presume upon God. Eventually, that presumption results in a warping and misaligning of priorities. This can happen to any of us so that we no longer resemble a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see in verses 3 through 4 with that danger of misplaced spiritual priorities. We no longer know what's right and what's wrong. We fall into the error of calling evil good and good evil. Verse 3 repeats and makes emphatic what was stated in verse 1 and 2. Haggai may be speaking, but it is the Lord through Haggai. These are God's words, not his. Listen up. Let all the earth be silent before him. Selah. Then verse 4 identifies the immediate result of the petrification, the decay, and the presumption of the people, and that is their priorities. Where it says, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Speaking of his house, the temple. You may not realize it just yet, but this is a heart-wrenching question. Like a skillful surgeon, the Lord reaches in and cuts to the deepest motivation of their hearts. See, Haggai pointed to the paneled houses as evidence of their misplaced priorities. They were told to return and rebuild the house of the Lord, but instead of doing that, they've done the opposite. What was supposed to be done for God, they've instead done for themselves. They've built for themselves houses, not just any houses, paneled houses. That word paneled is used only five other times in the Old Testament. Once it's used to simply describe covering something, but the other four are all used with regard to building and homes. First of the temple, then of Solomon's palace, and then metaphorically by Jeremiah. First Kings 6, 9, you read, so he, that is Solomon, built the house, finished it, and he paneled the house with beams and planks of cedar. 1 Kings 7, 3, it, that is Solomon's palace, was paneled with cedar from the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. It's a lot of cedar wood. Then in verse 7, he made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. Jeremiah 22, 14 says, I will build myself a roomy house with spacious upper rooms and cut into it windows, paneling it with cedar and painting it bright red. Given that context, that every time 
The references to cedar paneling, we can assume that they had paneled their houses luxuriously with cedar paneling. They've gone to great pains to make their homes comfortable and elegant. And we'll discuss the extent of this presumption even further next week and return to this paneling of houses. Today, however, note that they have made themselves out to be more important than God. It wasn't just that they disobeyed by not building. In the most arrogant way possible, they have disobeyed by building comfortable and pleasant homes for themselves. Think about what they've done. They've made themselves to be God. What was supposed to be done for God, they've done for themselves, which is tantamount to saying, well, if it's good enough for God, it's good enough for me. Shocking, but realize this, yet again, we do the exact same thing. Anytime we prioritize something above God, above obedience to Him, we are making ourselves out to be more important than God. This doesn't mean we neglect family. It doesn't mean we neglect work or responsibilities. Quite the contrary. God has given us those things so that we might serve Him rather than men. They're actually a means for obedience, for pleasing the Lord, but in all of it, moderation. There will be times where work or parenting will feel all-consuming, or the struggles of life, or the circumstances that you are going through. During those times, pray throughout the day. Find ways to meditate upon what you already know. Use the busy times to practice obedience. David, as a shepherd, was limited in what he could carry into the Judean hillside. It's unlikely, given the scarcity and the value of scrolls, that he carried much in the way of scrolls and written words with him. Instead, he put it in memory and meditated upon it. When it's hard to find time to study, think about what you've already studied. Listen to sermons or other teaching that will edify you and meditate upon those things. And then look for how you live out obedience in the busyness, in the situation. Just work to correctly prioritize your life and remember moderation. Have others in your life who can help you recognize when your priorities get out of whack. For those of us that are married, we have a built-in accountability for that. Listen to it. It takes humility. With those outside of our marriages, it takes transparency. This is a part of membership, being members of one another. Do you have people who know you well enough to help keep you on track? The question we want to ask in light of this this morning is, what have we prioritized in place of serving the Lord? What has God told me to do that I have not been doing because I've been too focused on my own interests? If this were you that Haggai was speaking to, would he be rousing you to share the gospel, to disciple your children, to counsel others, to serve the needs of those around you and in your community? Have you failed to do something saying, now is not the time for that because you've been too focused on your own wants and pleasures? What have you exchanged for these things? The pursuit of wealth, comfort, vacation, hobbies? Does your life demonstrate a right ordering of priorities? None of those things in and of themselves are wrong, but does your life demonstrate a right balance and ordering of priorities? If God were to return, would he be pleased with how you have ordered your time? As Paul reminds us in Ephesians 5.16, redeem the time for the days are evil. 
Philip Melanchthon, who followed Luther, was a disciple of his. He would close out every day in prayer, and he would pray and try to give an account for every wasted moment of time confessing it as sin. Because he cared about redeeming the time, ordering his time, prioritizing his time for such a time as this. If you're not rightly prioritizing these things, don't lose heart. Remember what we've already sung this morning, his mercy is more. Now is the time to begin reordering your priorities. Praise the Lord that he's brought it to mind. There's one more group I want to address, and it's the person who's never repented of their sins and cried out to the Lord for forgiveness. You could easily dismiss much of what I've said and say, well, it doesn't apply to me. And yet your life up to this point has been saying, now is not the time for salvation. In the most important area of obedience, you could not be more wrong. The time is now. It's now for you to repent and believe. It's not time for you to be comfortable. It's not time for you to feel good by the fact that you just came to church. It's not time for you to assuage your conscience by saying, well, at least I'm a good person. None of those things will deliver you from the fires of hell. None of that will appease a holy God who cannot allow sin to go unpunished. There's only one way to be saved from the judgment of God, and that is through Jesus Christ. Putting your faith in his life, his death, his resurrection, and asking God to take his death as the payment for your sins. Much like the temple, your life is desolate without Jesus Christ, no matter how hard you've tried to make it look good and pleasant by paneling your life. Nothing in this life will satisfy, and you know it. You know something is missing, and what is missing is your Savior, the only one who can heal and bandage that mortal wound of sin. So the call for you is to repent. Perhaps you have it simplest. It's the only thing you need to do this morning. We've observed this morning this progression of sin that begins with the cessation of obedience. This petrification brought on by fear or some outward influence that if not quickly addressed gives way to actions and words that demonstrate a presumption toward God in your life. And this presumption will ultimately lead to misplaced priorities that often bring severe consequences. Next week we'll see the outworking of some of these consequences in Judah over the past 16 to 17 years up to this time of Haggai as they have presumed and disobeyed and lived with these misplaced spiritual priorities. You see, despite their paneled housing, Judah has been languishing. There has been a spiritual famine in the land and they need this message. And perhaps you're here this morning languishing over your sin, over what it has done, where it's taken you. A pastor named Wayne Barber once said, sin will take you further than you ever intended to go. It will keep you longer than you ever wanted to stay, and it will cost you more than you ever determined to pay. If that's you, then begin today, this very moment, to obey the Lord. Now is the time. Not tomorrow, not the next day, but today. 
put into action those things we've discussed this morning and begin the process of restoring the joy of your salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words nearly 2,500 years ago that are so poignant for us this morning. Thank you for the faithfulness of your word, which helps to guide us, to instruct us, both through example and through exhortation, through imperative and how we are to live. Father, may we take this example, what was given to us, as we seek to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ this morning. In your name, amen.